The following message was given by Rayshawn Graves on Sunday, March 13th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 41, just reflecting on Jesus' death. And uh, I'll go ahead and, and start by just quoting the lyrics of a song. I, I won't sing it for you, but... Uh, <laughs> You may have heard it before. Uh, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Uh, Were you there? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there? Were you there when they pierced him in his side? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. So maybe you've heard the lyrics to this song before. Uh, Some of you probably recognize it from Johnny Cash, but uh, long before the man in black got a hold of it, this song was actually a spiritual sung by slaves in the 19th century. And uh, the lyrics are simple, but they describe and they point to uh, the passage that we're in today. And so my hope is that as we encounter the death of Jesus, that uh, it will cause us to have a similar reaction as the one that's mentioned in these lyrics, uh, to tremble to stand in awe of what's happening here at the cross and to see it vividly, to put ourselves there. And uh, not, just happen- not just what's happening here physically to Jesus as he hangs on the cross, as the movies so often attempt to display, uh, showing the wooden cross and the flogging and the blood and the scars and the nails. But ultimately, we want to see what's taking place spiritually here as well. When the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, he desired the same thing from the, for them when he proclaimed to them the death of Jesus, saying that it was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So the death of Jesus was something that he wanted them to see clearly and to experience, and this is what we want to see from Mark's account of this event as well. Last week, we were able to look into some of the physical sufferings of Jesus, but this week, we'll look into his greater sufferings as the Lamb of God. And so this is low-hanging fruit today, right? If you've been with us here for a while, you'll you'll know that uh, we always try in our sermons to get to this point, the cross. God's plan for the redemption of his people through the death of his son, Jesus, is what the entirety of the Bible points to, and it's what we want to be reminded of each time that we gather. And so my task today is an an easy one. It's a layup, if you will. Uh, At at worst, if anything, I'll just read the passage and we can just think about it and call it a day. I'm just kidding. We won't won't do that. But look, there's so much that you could say about the death of Jesus. Again, there are books on books and sermons on sermons worth about what happens in this dark and yet glorious moment. And so although I won't be able to say it all today, there's some things in Mark's brief account of this event that he wants us and his audience in Rome to know. And so uh, if you look at this passage, if you look at this passage, you'll notice that Mark doesn't spend a great deal of time or space describing the physical pain and torment that Jesus is going through uh, in his crucifixion. And uh, this is probably because Mark's audience already had a a very vivid understanding of uh, the punishment, the gruesome punishment of crucifixion. And so what Mark highlights in this passage is something else. What he highlights here is that everyone is communicating in this passage. Everyone is communicating through through everything from signs to psalms, from mockeries to confession, everyone from God the Father to Jesus to his enemies who are watching him die, uh, even those who are watching as spectators. 
Everyone in this passage is interacting with the cross that stands before them, and everyone is giving a response. And so uh, this is important for us today because this passage, it warrants the same thing from us, a response. Whether or not you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, upon beholding the cross of Jesus, there will always be a response. And the question for us today is, how have you responded? How will you respond to the cross? And so again, here we are at Golgotha, the place where Jesus is is being crucified. He's been on the cross for three hours now, and Mark will take us into the last three hours of Jesus' life. And we know that all kinds of people are present here at the cross. The crowds are filled with those who've mocked him and condemned him. Everyone from people who once followed him and have now turned on him and rejected him. We also see the Jewish scribes and the Pharisees who have been waiting for this moment for such a long time. But we also see the thieves who are crucified beside Jesus who mocked him as well. We also know that the Roman soldiers are present. Men who were trained executioners in crucifixion, ensuring that Jesus is tormented and taunted as he hangs there on the cross. But who else is present? Who else is here at the cross? Well, we know who's not present. The disciples. John's gospel, it tells us that John himself was present as as he watched the crucifixion with Jesus' mother Mary. But we don't see any other of Jesus' closest followers now. It's just, as if, it's, just had he, it's just as if he's spoken in the garden to earlier in Gethsemane that they all fallen away from him. The disciples in this moment had all lost courage or hope, and they had scattered. So who do we see here at this scene at the cross? We'll look at verses 40 through 41. This is where we'll start, and Mark tells us that there were also women looking on from a distance among who were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the, young, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, it's significant that Mark mentions these women specifically who were with Jesus in, in his final hours witnessing his passion. Women in, in those days were often overlooked and weren't even eligible to give a testimony in a court of law. And yet by Mark including these women as eyewitnesses, they now not only serve as some of the key eyewitnesses to the death of Jesus, but they also serve as recipients and demonstrations of the grace of God in the gospel that shows no partiality to either male or or female. See, what Mark is doing here by including the witness of these women at the cross was totally countercultural. What he had done in the Gospels by showing and and writing and recording uh, the the events of Jesus' interaction with women, in addition to this, was completely the way that the opposite to the way that the culture worked in those days. And so, what was the response of these women to the cross? Well, we see that they followed him there. They they had followed the ministry of Jesus from the beginning, and although they weren't part of the 12, many of them were just as present, and the impact that they had upon Jesus' ministry was vitally important. They served him with their time, with their resources, with their gifts. Mark also notes that they ministered to him, and Jesus had ministered to them as well. 
healing some of them, delivering some of them, such as Mary Magdalene, encouraging them, affirming them, and now he's serving them by dying for them. See, this wasn't the way that rabbis ordinarily associated with women in those days. So again, their response in this moment, they continued to do just what they had been doing, following Jesus, even to the cross, and they would continue to minister to him even after his death even though aligning themselves and associating themselves with Jesus might have cost them, even though it would possibly earn them rejection from the crowds who rejected Jesus and mockery and scorn. These women who had just as much to lose as the disciples acted courageously in this moment, displaying strength that not even the disciples could display. And just think about Mary. How hard must it have been for Mary to watch as her son is beaten, flogged, crushed at the cross? Along with these women, Mary would now watch from a distance. As the echoes of Genesis 3 rang, she would watch her promised seed, her seed, her promised seed, who would be bruised by death and yet crush the head of the serpent. So jump back up to to verse 33. Now that we've seen who is present at the cross, Mark paints a picture of the scenery at the cross. He says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So Jesus had been hanging on the cross for three hours up to this point, and now after three hours in broad daylight, a darkness begins to set in over the whole land. Now remember, this is 12 o'clock. This is the middle of the day to be exact. What is this darkness doing here? What is going on with this darkness? Where is it coming from? Well, history tells us that this wasn't just an eclipse or or some unexplained natural phenomenon. Yes, certainly the sun was blocked naturally for a period of time in this particular region of the world, but the origin of this darkness was due to something else. And Mark doesn't explicitly state why this darkness is present, but if Jesus is who he professes himself to be, then who this darkness is from isn't necessarily a mystery. This darkness is from God. See, throughout the ministry of Jesus, the presence of God has always been with Jesus, from his baptism to his healings during his transfiguration. And while it's always been a presence that is bright and joyous and glorious, What is this darkness now? What is this darkness communicating? What is God communicating through this sign of darkness? Well, we see that this darkness communicates a few things, but ultimately they'll all point to the judgment of God. See, it wouldn't take much for the people of Israel watching here at the foot of the cross to remember that around this same time of the year, during Passover, almost 1,500 years earlier, a similar darkness swept through the land of Egypt where their ancestors were once enslaved. And just before the Lord instituted the first Passover, telling the people of Israel to sacrifice a lamb without blemish and to put its blood over their doorpost to keep them from the coming plague of death, the Lord sent a plague of darkness over the land of Egypt. And this darkness wasn't simply a period of time with the absence of sunlight. No, but the book of Exodus says that this was a darkness that was to be felt. And so instead of for three hours, this darkness in Egypt lasted for three days as God judged Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. 
And so now this same darkness that preceded the sacrifices of the first Passover would now precede the greatest and final Passover sacrifice, the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. And although the text doesn't state it explicitly here in Mark, it's safe to say that this too was a darkness that could be felt, darkness that brought with it a sense of dread and gloom and terror. Darkness that communicated that whatever was happening in this moment, God was behind it. God was closely involved. So again, from this darkness, we can see God's judgment. And the judgment of God in this moment could be twofold in a sense. On the one hand, this darkness communicated God's judgment on the most heinous crime in human history, the murder of his son. See, although what was taking place at the cross was the predetermined plan according to the foreknowledge of God, the people who betrayed Jesus, turned him over to the Romans, condemned him, and had him crucified, they would be held responsible for their wicked actions. This darkness in this moment communicated that the judgment and the displeasure of God on the most heinous crime in human history, they killed him. They crucified and murdered the Son of God. And again, this this darkness isn't the kind of thing that normally happens at crucifixions. When the clouds begin to grow dark, when this darkness begins to sweep over the land at 12 o'clock noon, it's possible that some people were thinking that the judgment of God was present. But right now, this judgment won't fall on the Jewish leaders. It won't fall on the Romans. It won't even fall on the roaring crowds who condemned Jesus, although they all justly deserve to just be wiped out in that moment. No, at the cross, the judgment of God falls on someone else. So furthermore, this darkness could also point to another presence at the cross, lurking behind the wickedness of these people. This darkness brought with it the very one who, as the book of Hebrews tells us, had power over sin and death, the devil, the serpent from the beginning, the prince of darkness, as Ephesians describes him, who enslaves those who are under the fear of death. And so although we don't see them, this adversary is present along with the the spiritual forces and the demonic powers of darkness that operate in this world, now seeking to wound Jesus even more in this moment. But even they aren't obliterated as Jesus hangs there in that hour. So while the judgment of God isn't poured out on these people in this moment for their wicked actions against his son, the darkness over the land will ultimately point to the judgment from God against sin that will be poured out on Jesus on the cross. It was this that was the cup that he longed to be taken from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. This darkness was indicative of the wrath against sin that would uh, crush Jesus on the cross. And contrary to what some people believe, it, it wasn't necessary for Jesus to descend into hell after his death. See, hell was coming to him in this moment. Hell itself would be making an appearance at the cross to deal Jesus the final blow. And when we think of hell, we think of the punishment and the torment and the wrath of God, the separation from God that lasts eternally forever. When the very essence of hell itself, God's eternal wrath and judgment, crushes Jesus on the cross in this moment, we see that Jesus quenches it. He absorbs it. 
the eternal punishment for sinners that should go on forever, Jesus absorbs in just six hours on the cross. And so if anyone is feeling the dread and the gloom and the darkness of this moment, it's Jesus. As he hangs there, He's bearing the mockery and the insults of the crowd, the onslaughts of the devil, and most importantly and severely, the justice of God. And so in the midst of this darkness, Jesus, responding to this incredible weight that's being placed upon him, he cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so it's now 3 p.m., and it's, as Jesus cries this out, he musters up from his physically broken body all the strength that he has to communicate this spiritual and emotional agony that he's experiencing right now. And if we just read this statement on the surface, isn't it heartbreaking? Isn't it devastating to, to listen to this Jesus who, who is eternally present with the Father and the Father who was with Jesus all throughout his ministry is now forsaking the Son? It points to the fact that in this moment, Jesus is facing the full weight of God's wrath and the punishment for sin, and he's now doing so alone. The disciples have left him. His followers have left him, but even more so, God, his Father, has forsaken him. Some commentators note that the estrangement in this moment had become so deep that Jesus, who once referred to God as his Father, now refers to him simply as, my God. Again, on the surface of this statement, it would be easy for us to, to draw these conclusions from this moment, and we wouldn't necessarily be wrong to do so. Yes, Jesus' soul is being crushed in this moment. Yes, he's alone as he hangs there on the cross, surrounded by the darkness of sin, judgment, and evil. And so the question that he poses here is most assuredly heartfelt, but it's also rhetorical. Jesus says this in this moment because he feels this, but it also points to something else. See, as much as you and I, we would like to think that Jesus is simply a bewildered victim of the unjust decisions of some corrupt individuals, that's not the case. Jesus in this moment is fully aware of what's happening on the cross. He's fully aware of the sacrifice that he's making. And although that doesn't make it any easier, this statement that he makes is both filled with the real and weighty emotion that he's experiencing in this hour, but it's also filled with the eternal truth about what he's fulfilling as a part of God's eternal plan to redeem sinners. And so this question that Jesus poses to God, this question is a lyric. It's a psalm. Jesus quotes the words to what we know as Psalms 22, which was written by his ancestor David centuries earlier. And perhaps David found himself in a situation where he felt as though the Lord had forsaken him in his suffering as well. And so David begins this psalm with this same cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night I find no rest. And so it probably wasn't just the opening line of this psalm that was on the mind of Jesus as he hung there on the cross, but the whole psalm described his experience in this moment. 
David continues on in Psalm 22 saying, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. And later on, this psalm continues saying, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Who is quoting who here? Yes, David is experiencing very real suffering in this moment that he's writing this, but it's by no coincidence that Jesus experiences the very same things in even a much greater way. This psalm is prophetic. The cry that Jesus makes there on the cross is prophetic. Like David, Jesus groans and cries aloud in this hour of suffering. Like David, Jesus experiences the, the severe mocking and the despising from the people around him. Like David, Jesus watches his own body crumble, arms and legs out of joint, scarred, bruised, and even helpless. He sees his hands and his feet pierced, his strength dried up, and he even watches. He watches as his clothes are gambled over by Roman soldiers. And like David, Jesus feels the abandonment of God. He feels it. But unlike David, Jesus actually experiences the abandonment of God in a way that David could have never imagined, in a way that none of us could ever imagine, even in the midst of our own sufferings and afflictions. See, David's psalm was definitely about David, but even more so, it's about Jesus. It's about his experience in the darkest moment in human history. It's the, it's the agony of his soul as he bears the punishment for sin and the judgment of God in the place of sinners. And the reason Jesus bears this abandonment and forsakenness is because this is what our sin deserves. Our sin deserves punishment. Our sin deserves abandonment. Our sin deserves to, for us to be forsaken. Jesus is forsaken by God because that is God's response to sin. He doesn't merely distance himself and separate himself from it. He crushes it. And in this moment, he crushes Jesus because Jesus is bearing the punishment for our sin. So before we proceed, for, for just a moment, we, we could all ask ourselves, has there ever been a period of time in where you've felt this kind of darkness that we see here? Maybe the darkness of your own sin, the, the darkness of guilt or, or shame. Again, maybe it's from your own sin, maybe it's from being sinned against. Perhaps you're here and you currently feel like the, the dark and looming punishment of God's wrath is hovering over you, waiting to strike you for something that you've done. Maybe you're here and you feel some kind of dark or satanic or demonic opposition that's aggressively coming against you to destroy you or sift you. 
whatever the case may be, doesn't it become so easy for us to try to, to deal with these things ourselves or to, to make amends for these things in our, in our own strength using our own methods? When the guilt begins to, to drown you, when the sin overwhelms you, when the shame becomes too much to hide and when the demons become too difficult to fight, we make great efforts in our own strength to try to bring resolution to these things, whether it means hiding them or covering them, covering them up or fixing them or even denying them. But if we're honest, we can't. The weight is too much to bear. It's impossible to fix. And when it becomes impossible to fix, we often feel abandoned, abandoned either by God or by others, feeling forsaken, feeling hopelessly unworthy, either thinking that God should have bailed on us a long time ago or wondering where he was in the midst of the sin or the suffering. Just to keep it 100 with you today, we deserve to feel like that. Because of our sin, we deserve forsakenness. We deserve abandonment from God, separation from him. The response to our cries to God, like Jesus, like David, in our moments of affliction, in our moments of sin, in our moments of suffering, should be abandonment. If you've ever asked yourself, if you've ever asked God this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The truth is we should be left without an answer. The answer. But the cross, the cross, the cross gives us us an answer to the, the punishment that we deserve for it. It gives an answer for the safety that David and Jesus ask in the midst of their suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cross gives us a greater answer in that it gives us a substitute. Our loving God pursues those who are unlovely. He pursues those who are undeserving. And what he does in pursuing us is that on the cross, Jesus takes our place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. Although Jesus does nothing to deserve this darkness, nothing to deserve this punishment, nothing deserving of his father's abandonment, because of his love for God and because of his love for us and because of God's love for his people, God sends Jesus as a substitute for those who deserve punishment. Galatians tells us that Jesus gave himself for our sins and that he became a curse for us. On the cross, Jesus bore the punishment and the wrath of God for our sin. He took upon himself our guilt and our shame. Like Isaiah 53 says, he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Through his substitution, as Colossians says, Jesus cancels the record of the debt of our sin that stands against us by nailing it to the cross, and he disarms every satanic authority and power of darkness and makes an embarrassment and open show of them. He triumphs over them in the cross. 
At the cross, as Jesus tasted death, he destroys the one who had power over death and delivers all of those who were enslaved to it. See, in the midst of this darkness and in the echoes of this cry, Jesus becomes the perfect and spotless Passover lamb whose blood would be slain so that death's power would not reign over us. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in. When Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. You want to know if God loves? Look to the cross. You want to see the the supreme demonstration of that love? Look to the cross. Ultimately, Jesus takes upon himself the abandonment from the Father that we deserve. Instead of being forsaken by God for eternity, left completely destitute in our sin and the punishment for it, Jesus is forsaken. He's abandoned by his Father. And listen, I don't claim to have a complete theological understanding of exactly what that looked like in this moment. This is a mystery that we will never plunge the depths of. But like David in Psalms 22, you and I, we know what it feels like to feel like God has abandoned us, to feel like God has forsaken us. But Jesus experiences this very real forsakenness and actual abandonment in such a way that all who trust in his substitutionary death can be assured that they will never be forsaken or abandoned by God because he has taken our place. So towards the middle and the end of Psalms 22, David's cries take a drastic turn into shouts of hope because of his confidence in the Lord. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard him when he cried to him. See, like David... Jesus' cries of deliverance will turn into shouts of hope and joy because he knows that God hears him. And because of his substitution in our place, our sin, our failures, our wrestling with demonic opposition, and our cries of forsakenness have, can turn into shouts of confidence in God. Because God will not leave us utterly forsaken. Because God forsook Jesus, God will not forsake those who turn and trust in the finished work of his son. Listen, I I wish we could end right here. But there are two other responses to the cross in this passage that we need to see. So look at verse 35. After Jesus cries out the opening words of Psalms 22, verse 35 says that in some of the bystanders hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So what's the response of the crowd in this moment? Well, it's to continue to mock. Even through this dreadful, gloomy, supernatural darkness, they continue to mock Jesus. Even through Jesus' shrilling prophetic cry. See, this crowd may or may not have understood what Jesus said as he cried out to God. 
And whether it was sincerely uh, misunderstood by them is neither here nor them, neither here nor there. What they do next shows what their actual intentions were, and by cruelly twisting Jesus' words, they they don't really care about what he's saying. They're just looking to make him more of a spectacle. And so the people's misconstrued mocking of Jesus, believing that he was calling Elijah, it stemmed from the belief that on the day of the Lord, Elijah would be a deliverer or a savior who would rescue the righteous who were in need. And so in a mockingly yet superstitiously inquiring way to keep Jesus alive long enough to see whether Elijah would come and take him down, they give him this sour wine, a drink that wouldn't have necessarily been cruel, but it would have been a drink that had, would have temporarily quenched Jesus' thirst and caused him to live a little bit longer at their expense. See, these people, they keep thinking that salvation is for him to come down off the cross when salvation is really for him to remain there. See, these people, they're still looking for power. They're still looking for Jesus to retaliate. They're looking for Jesus to show power to overthrow the Romans, power to conquer, some sort of physical manifestation or demonstration of power. But the power that Jesus is displaying in this moment and throughout his entire ministry has always been different. Here we see the power of Jesus' obedience, the power of his humility, that he humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. So as the bystanders are mocking Jesus, attempting to prolong his life for just a few more moments, verse 37, it says that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus dies. He dies. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Luke's Gospel tells us that some of Jesus' last words uh, in the moment before he took his last breath were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in addition to this, John's Gospel states that Jesus proclaimed the words, It is finished before he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. But all accounts from this loud cry to these final words all point us to how Jesus approached death. See, he doesn't succumb to it. His life isn't taken from him in this moment by the crowds or the soldiers or even the severe affliction of his body. No, Jesus lays his life down of his own accord. He gives up his ghost. Jesus dies crying out in strength, looking towards, praying to his Father, confident that he has fulfilled the will of God. Yes, his physical sufferings and the autopsy of his body will show that he was killed and crucified in the worst way humanly imaginable. But what caused Jesus' head to to hang and breathe his last in this moment was God himself. God crushed Jesus, and as Isaiah 53 says, he was pleased to crush him as a sacrifice for our sin. And make no mistake, this was no divine child abuse. Jesus willingly laid down his life, and as the book of Hebrews said, for the joy that was set before him, of sitting at God's right hand, of bringing sinners who he would make his brothers into the congregation so that they might have forgiveness of sin, so that they might have joy and acceptance before God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. 
And now it has been accomplished. It has been finished. Jesus, this man who shouted his last breath was no victim. He was victorious. In his death, Jesus wasn't a failure, but a fulfiller of the eternal purposes of God for the redemption of God's people. And so beholding Jesus' death, as the spectators are watching, as the people are mocking, after just six hours, this might have puzzled some of the people who were, who were standing there. Well, why? Well, because this was no ordinary death by crucifixion. Normally, those who were crucified remained alive for up to three days after those nails pierced their hands on the cross. But here, Jesus died just after six hours on the cross, on top of the fact that he died in such an intense manner. He cried out in strength these last words. And so this caught the attention of both Pilate, as we'll see in the next passage, but it also caught the attention of a Roman centurion. Look at verse 39. It says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. See, if Mark's readers weren't already captivated by the account of the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, this would have been one of the moments that struck them. See, the Roman soldiers, they participated in this entire process, and they themselves witnessed the mocking, the darkness, the cries. Luke mentions an earthquake that happened and the way that Jesus entered into death. They witnessed this. But look, they're no disciples. They have no interest in Jewish religion or Jewish religious laws and customs. They couldn't care less about whatever blasphemies the Jews thought Jesus had made about himself. This centurion who would have seen, who would have been the head of all the law enforcement present on Golgotha that day, he would have seen hundreds of crucifixions. What makes this one any different? This is just another day in Judea. And while we don't know the depths of the experiences of what this man saw, what he witnessed as he watched Jesus on the cross in his last moments was enough to convince him that this man this man who died was more powerful than even the man who wrote his checks, Caesar. See, Roman culture and politics, it was built on the fact that Caesar and his, his descendants, his sons, were sons of God, that they were sons of the divine. It was even inscribed on their currency, Caesar, son of God. And the fact that Jesus made himself a king other than Caesar was just one of the reasons that he was crucified on this day. But now as Jesus takes his last breath, the very man who was responsible with the task of crucifying Jesus now confesses him. Truly, this man was the Son of God. See, unlike those who mocked Jesus, unlike those who mocked him looking for Jesus to show some sort of physical display of power, this centurion saw the power that Jesus actually possessed as he died. Maybe it was the way Jesus entered death. Maybe the centurion saw an incredible amount of strength in Jesus' last weakest moment. Maybe he saw that it wasn't the flogging or the thorns or the nails or the beatings or the mockings that killed Jesus, that there, there was something else at play here. 
the text doesn't tell us. What, what it does tell us is that after beholding Jesus on the cross, dying, breathing his last breath, this centurion, probably the most oblivious person to any spiritual aspect of Jesus' death, he confesses what Mark has been after through this entire book. This man was the son of God. And this is the climax of Mark's gospel. This is what Mark has been trying to show us. This is what Mark has been getting after to his readers, that Jesus is the son of God, the Christ. See, every enemy of Jesus has done everything possible to suppress the truth about who he is, but it still comes out. This time, not from the the mouth of his closest disciple, not from someone he's healed, not from someone he's delivered, not from one of his closest followers, but a Gentile, a Roman centurion, a man who essentially could say, I didn't know this man 24 hours ago. I haven't seen any of his miracles. I haven't heard his sermons. I haven't witnessed his power over nature or demons. But after watching him die, I feel as though I have seen God at work. I have seen God. This Jesus was exactly who he said he was. This Jesus was exactly who he said he was. What is happening here is this centurion makes this confession. What is going on? How how can he say this? Because through the darkness on this day, through the great thick black darkness, there was light. There was light. It was the light of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ that shone into this man's heart, penetrating his hardness, penetrating his sinfulness, showing him the beauty and the glory of what God would do in saving sinners through his son, Jesus. Listen, I hope that this is the vividness that comes through as you read this passage Listen, if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus here today, I hope for a moment that you can just place yourself in the shoes of this centurion. Here's a a guy, he's a a witness who has nothing to gain from co-signing another dead criminal. And yet, I hope you don't just see this as another good man dying. Another good religious teacher. Another good moral figure. I hope you don't just see this as a historical death certificate verifying that a man named Jesus died over 2,000 years ago by crucifixion. The question for you today is can you see the Son of God on this cross? Can you see the punishment that he bears for sinners? To press it home just a little bit further, can you see him bearing the punishment for your sin? for your crimes against God. Can you see in this moment that as Jesus dies, he is dying the death that you deserve to die? How do you respond to the cross? How will you respond to Jesus hanging there, dying, bearing the weight of sin? Listen, I'm not asking if you're looking for spirituality or religion or trying to be a better person. The centurion wasn't looking for any of this when he woke up that morning and now when he's watching Jesus die. How will you respond to this Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God, who claimed that all who believe on him, all who turn from their sin will live forever and will never be cast off or forsaken from God? 
How will you respond to this Jesus who claimed that he is the only way to the Father and that no one comes to God but by him? What is your response? Is it mocking? Is it hardening yourself? Scattering, turning away at a distance? Or trusting him in thankfulness? Thus might I hide my blushing face when his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. Is this your response? I pray that as you see this, as you see, as Paul said, Christ publicly portrayed as crucified before your eyes, that this would be your response. So maybe, maybe you're here and you need one more witness to these things. One more response from that dark day. Look at verse 38. It says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So geographically, we've been at Golgotha the entire time, right? How did, how did the temple get in here? I mean, what's Mark doing by putting this in here? Isn't this like someone telling the story about their near-death experience on the top of Mount Everest and then saying, well, and then I remembered I left the stove on? What is Mark doing by putting this here? Well, what he's doing is he's inserting another event that took place simultaneously during the death of Jesus, and he places it exactly after Jesus' death so that people can know that this wasn't just by some coincidence. See, the centurion confessed and the curtain of the temple was torn. But now what does this have to do with anything? How is this a witness to what was happening at the cross? If you're you're familiar with the temple, if you know what was going on during this time and centuries before, how the high priest would be chosen to enter into the most holy place, a place that was veiled because of human sinfulness, He had to purify himself or he could die himself after going in there to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. It's possible that during this time as the Passover was taking place, that the priests were entering the temple to offer the evening Passover sacrifice. The high priest was getting ready to go in, and it was possible that at this time that this 60-foot-long, 30-foot-wide veil that took up the 300 priests to move was torn from top to bottom. No priest did this. If this darkness in this, if the, if the darkness in this moment is seen as a grim yet just response from, from, the fa- from the Father to the cross, this veil could be seen as a bright and victorious response. See, what happens in this moment as the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom signifies what Jesus has just accomplished in his death. This veil no longer is the way and by, through which we come to God. Jesus is. He's given us access to the Father, access to his forgiveness, access to his grace by a new and living way. What was once restricted due to our sinfulness, the sinfulness of humans, is now open to sinners through Jesus bearing the punishment for our sin on the cross. This tearing of the veil was the hand of God reaching through the midst of the darkness outside and putting an end to the current priesthood inside of that temple. In this moment, God would establish a new high priest, 
One who, as the book of Hebrews says, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Listen, as we close today, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? I hope that after seeing what Jesus endured, not just physically, but spiritually in the place of the most undeserving, you can answer, yes. It was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. It was me in that crowd mocking. It was me who was hardened, hardened to what God was doing through Jesus. But because of him, because of his substitutionary death, you and I, we can know that Jesus on that cross took our place. He was there for us. He drank your death and absorbed your punishment. He defeated sin, Satan, and death through his body being broken and crushed on that tree. And now he gives life to those who trust in him, those who will turn from their sin through the shedding of his own lifeblood. This morning, I hope you respond by trusting in him. At this time where we begin to take communion, respond by seeing his broken body, seeing his shed blood, seeing his work finished in your place. If that's your hope, if that's what you trust in, if that's what you need to be reminded and refreshed and encouraged about this week, today, then come forward and take of communion. Remember his body broken. Remember his blood shed. Remember this new covenant that he now gives and brings that all who trust in him, all who turn from sin can have life, can have forgiveness and acceptance before God. But if you're here today, and maybe you're still unfamiliar with these claims about Jesus, the claims that he makes about himself, the claims that, that God co-signs on about who Jesus is and what he does on this cross, then take a moment at your seat. Respond. Respond in prayer. Cease from responding in mockery. Cease from responding and turning away from God. Respond and turn to him and crying out to him. Because if you trust in Jesus, he will hear those cries. He will save. Remain at your seat. And if you aren't sure what to pray, you can look on the back of your bulletin and pray. But for those of the rest of us who have placed our hope and trust in Jesus, you can come forward and, and receive of communion. You've been listening to a message by Rayshawn Graves given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.